Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And on this episode, there's some thunderheads rolling out across the land because it's SST 153, the SWA EP Arroyo. We've had the Arroyo song on the show before, but we get it twice with this episode, Brant. And we've got a special guest. Yeah, Modi Frank's on the show. And you can't have too much Arroyo, man. Yeah. yeah. Right, listen, listen. I'm in search of sacred waters. I need some Arroyo. Okay? <laughs> you came to the right place then. No dispute from me here. Can I hit you with some spiels before we get going? Yes, you can. All right. The first one I have is on the hand to man band ever heard of that never so this is another mike watt proj that i discovered (laughs) it is it's another one but this one's from 2012 and completely escaped me they put out a record called you are always on our minds and the guys in the band i really don't know much well i guess i know a bit about some of them there's a guy tholem mcdonis who's apparently a legendary solo pianist. I haven't checked that out, but he's also a member of this band called Sigotti, T-S-I-G-O-T-I. They look to be an Italian band, and they sound a lot like kind of a mashup of the Minutemen and Saccharin Trust. Mm. So I recommend you check out Sigotti. Mm-hmm. That's kind of neat. Uh, John Dietrich, who's a guitarist for Deerhoof, Tim Barnes from the Silver Jews and the Jim O'Rourke band. And then Mike Watt, of course. It's an avant-garde, jazzy-sounding record. No surprise there. But the Hand to Man Band, another Mike Watt proj that I discovered and uh, is interesting to check out. Probably my favorite part of it, though, was discovering this band, Sigotti, from Italy. Um, You should check them out. I will be, for sure. I've got a spiel on some Rock Docs brands. Oh, okay. Is this your next 10 that you're going to watch? No, no, there's only just a couple here. One is called White Riot. It's new, and it was just released on Amazon anyways, is where I saw it, Amazon Prime. And it's about the Rock Against Racism movement Mm -hmm. in the late 70s in the UK. Their fight against the National Front political party. There's lots of great footage, of course, of The Clash, Sham 69, lots of great reggae music, even some Tom Robinson footage, like the good Tom Robinson stuff. And it's it's really, I, I really enjoyed it. Like, I really thought it was cool. Like, this is what DIY looks like. The Rock Against Racism movement in the late 70s there. And the zine that was um, a big communication vehicle for this movement called Temporary Hoarding. You can see some pics of Temporary Hoarding online. There's also uh, a lot of images from the temporary hoarding zine in the uh, the book by Fadon Press called Oh So Pretty. But White Riot, if you're interested in like some real legit DIY, um, some great music, The Clash, the late 70s, like it's a really different take on the late 70s punk movement um, from all the other zillion of docs that you've seen around then. So check that one out. Mm hmm. The next one that I I don't think we've mentioned, so I wanted to make sure I mention it because I'm I'm quite enjoying it. It's on the Twin Cities PBS website, and it's a series on Minnesota hardcore. Have we mentioned that one yet? I don't think so. I don't think so either. So there's there's 
three episodes. The third one just dropped. But you go to the Twin Cities PBS website and you can find um, all three of them really easily. The first one's kind of an intro to Minnesota Hardcore, episode one. The second one is called The Fastest Band in the World. So it's it's obviously about Husker Du. The mm-hmm. third one is it's out now. It's it covers, you know, more local bands than just Husker Du. Um, bands like Rifle Sport, Red Meat, or Loud Fast Rules, which of course turn into Soul Asylum. They're they're great little fifteen to twenty minute documentaries that you can pick up just free on the web and they're cool. You should check those out. I will. And then my final one is a podcast shout out brand. Nice. Nice. Now I've I've basically been shouting out about basically only this podcast <laughs> the last few <laughs> times. But the the Watt from Pedro show October twelfth episode had John Worcester on it. Mm-hmm. And uh it was it was really excellent. I just loved the uh the stories that these guys were spieling about with each other. Really covers a lot of how um, John started out playing and it, it really covers, you know, John's drumming with a whole bunch of bands, but most importantly, of course, how he got into Super Chunk and then also just as important as how he got into the Bob Mould band. And uh, it's very cool, like great discussion and lots and lots of reminiscing about some great gigs. So that one is worth checking out for my money. And of course, Watt is uh, spinning some wicked tunes that I've never heard before on the show. Yeah, always. Those are my spiels, man. How about you? Okay, well, I'm going to start with this one, Ryan. I picked this up. It's the group sex reissue on this Trust Records. Right. So do you know what Trust Records is? I don't. I mean, I I read about this reissue, but remind me what Trust Records is. Okay, so it's a brand new label. Uh, It's Joe Nelson from Winds of Promise and Trigger Man and Matt Pincus from Judge. And they're going to be releasing a bunch of stuff on BYO. I think their next few releases are Seven Seconds, The Crew, Youth Brigade, Sound and Fury, and Aggression, Don't Be Mistaken. So they're re-releasing, is that right? Yes. Yeah, I yes. gotcha. Okay. Now this, like I've heard Group Sex a gazillion times. I already okay. own it on CD and on vinyl, as I'm sure every single person listening to this podcast probably does. It's one of the best 20 minutes of all time. I, I completely agree. And so this is the 40th anniversary edition, if you can believe that. Wow. And it's worth picking up. There's some bonus tracks on here that are... Uh, from a rehearsal session from Hmm. this era. And then the real reason it's worth picking up is for this massive book that comes with it. And I believe if you get it right from maybe the Circle Jerks website or the Trust Records website, you can get a zine zine as well that they made to go with it. But this booklet has interviews with, let's see, uh, while I know uh, Keith Morris and Greg Hetson are in here, John Worster, who you just mentioned, he's in here. Nice. Uh, Dave Markey, John Dwyer from the OCs, Gary Tovar's in here, Jack Rabbit, Raymond Pettibone, Penelope Spheris, Brett Gurowitz, Mark Arm, Greg Graffin, Mike Patton. 
the Faith No More, Mike Patton, Jay Mascus, Muggers in here talking about the photo shoot. Oh, he, I bet. Yeah. He's on. He's on here. Muggers on here. Uh, spots in here. Who's wearing the pill shirt on that cover? Did they say? Uh, no, but Mugger refers to him as the guy who looks like the guy in Genesis, which I think he means Phil Collins. <laughs> <laughs> Not Peter Gabriel. Okay. No. Greg Turner's in here. Uh, the funny thing about Mugger is he points out that he's he's doing the the thing where you put your tongue in your cheek to make it look like the blowjob thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought, that's that's, what, is that what that is? I thought it was always to sh make it look like you got a big chaw tobacco in your mouth. No, that's what Mugger's doing. Kid Congo's in here. Chris D, John Doe, Jack Grissom, Watts in here, Ian Mackay. That sounds like a good read. Donita Sparks. Yeah, it's a real who's who, man. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a great package. And, it, you know, I... I never get tired of hearing this record, and I've heard it thousands of times, just like I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast has. Yeah. But worth worth the money, for sure. The drumming always still blows me away, in particular on that record. Oh, yeah. Almost every single person that I just mentioned singles out Lucky's drumming. Yeah. It's just freaking crazy, man. Yeah. No one, no one does that even now, right? Yeah. Jay Mascus talks about... Using this record, he would put it on and put it on 45 and try and play along with it because they wanted, he wanted Deep Wound to be the fastest band ever. <laughs> okay, that's enough. Don't ruin yeah. it for him. Okay. Ryan, I have the W section of my Get This Shit Off My Phone segment. We're, we're rounding the corner here, Ryan, and I'm, I'm happy to be done with this. Do we have a name for the W section? Yeah, it's, whoa, we're almost there. <laughs> I, I thought it might be, phew. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm digging it, I'm digging it. Let's hear it, move it or milk okay. it, my friend. Move it okay. or milk it. It's Well, it's long, so I'll make it fast. Wishbone Ash, Argus. Do you like Wishbone Ash, Ryan? No, I've never dug into them too much, no. Should I? I think so. This is their third and best record. Uh, kind of popularized the twin guitar thing. Uh, Andy Powell and Ted Turner, huge influence on Priest and Maiden. Okay, well there you go. Like you lost me again. Yeah. Well, they don't. They don't sound like Priest or Maiden. Okay. What do they sound like? This isn't like, this isn't some a high gotcha hair metal thing again, no, is it? No. They're like a early seventies <laughs> prog band. <laughs> okay. Wreck Soul Train, the first of their two full lengths. You like this album, I bet, hey? Heck yeah. Is that, yeah. is that the CZ one? No, this is, uh, not the CZ one. I can't remember. can't remember what label it's on. Uh, in it's engineered by Albini. Keith Bremer from Die Kreutzen is in the band and Dean Schlabowski, who went on to form the Waco brothers, a really great band that I, I love. Uh, they were both in this band. Great songs, great vocals, fans of early nineties and rep bands will love it if they've never heard it. Okay, here's, you know, a band that you and I both were into back in the day that you re-recommended to me, and I'm glad you did. The Whip, self-titled release. You mentioned this many months ago. It's yep. on the We Empty Rooms label. It's everything they recorded and some live stuff. Uh, 
The drummer was Scott Jernigan from Carp, who unfortunately passed away in 2003 in a boating accident. I still need to see that Carp documentary, by the way, speaking of rock docs. Kill all redneck pricks, yeah. You can yeah. Uh, you can see it on YouTube for free now and then, I think. Hmm. Joe Preston, of a zillion bands, most notably uh, Melvin's, plays guitar and does vocals. Jared Warren is on bass and vocals, also of Carp, Big Business, and later the Melvin's. Fans of any of those bands will eat this up. Yeah. Oh, it's the great. Li- the live stuff's really good, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, here's one that's on the tree, Ryan. The new Wino record, Forever Gone. It's his new so- solo acoustic album. It's really good. Um, when I say solo acoustic, I mean more like it sounds like, you know, an unplugged session or something. Like there's drums and bass on it, but they're acoustic. Wheat Chiefs, Redeemer. This is the band Brent and Mark Belke formed after the first breakup of SNFU, and it's awesome. The title track in particular is an all-time classic. I first heard it on the Thrasher Skate Rock Volume 10 in a different version from this one. Uh, in my opinion, a far superior version than the album version, although that's really good. If you can track this down, I'm, ta- I'm not talking to you, Ryan, because I know you you own this and love it. But What, Redeemer? Yeah. Oh, come on. That is, that's insanely perfect album. It's insanely yeah. perfect, yeah. Yeah. But uh, anybody who's listening to this who's into SNFU, track down that record, Wheat Chiefs, Redeemer. Women, self-titled 2008, the Calgary band that released two great albums of arty post-punk before breaking up following an onstage fistfight while on tour. Two of the members went on to form Viet Cong, who I mentioned last week, uh, who subsequently changed their name to Preoccupations. Waldo the Dog-Faced Boy, Gifts of Finest Wheat, 1990 Win Records, awesome experimental art rock from our pal Devin Sarno. Warrior Soul, Last Decade, Dead Century, 1989 debut. My favorite, although there's other great records. Great early 90s Grebo rock, as it was being called at the time, with some amazingly poetic lyrics. Frontman Corey Clark played in a bunch of bands prior to forming Warrior Soul, including Detroit band L7, who we talked about a while back that have a new anthology on Third Man. Uh, Here's another one that's on the tree, Ryan. West Coast Modern Day Punk Rock Orchestra, Correspondence, right. 2009, Experimental Jazz Rock One-Off Supergroup, Watt Plays Bass, Matt Crane uh, plays drums, he was in a band called Custom Floor, Nels Klein is on guitar, Rick Froberg of Drive Like Jehu, Obits, Hot Snakes, he plays on it. Paul Jenkins of Three Mile Pilot and Blackheart Procession plays on it. And this guy, Jovi Butts, who played in the band Milo Ackerman formed in 1989 when he left Descendants, called Milestone. He's on it. And he and Matt Crane played in this band called Locomotive with Ray Cooper. And Matt has a Bandcamp page. It's mattcrane.bandcamp.com. And he recently uploaded their album, which was recorded sometime between 92 and 94 by Gar Wood, who also plays on this. I've been talking to Matt. He told me that he and Jovi also auditioned for Gone after Andrew and Sim left the band. Uh, and Matt also plays in some great jazz groups that you can check out on his band camp. That's worth worth a listen for sure. Right on. Yeah, that, we mentioned that band Custom Floor from San Diego a few episodes back too, right? Yeah. 
Wipers live at the Met jackpot 2018. Uh, Jackpot's done a number of Wipers reissues lately. This is the best Wipers live recording in my opinion. It's even better than the the official live record from 84. I would give anything for Greg Sage to make new music though. Yeah. Witchfinder General Death Penalty 1982 debut killer British doom metal for fans of Vitus. Watchtower, the prog metal band, Ryan, and not that lame-ass Dream Theater shit either. Control and Resistance, their second from 89 is their best, but the debut, Energetic Disassembly, is also great. You would probably not dig this though, Ryan. Uh, Alan Tecchio's vocals make Getty Lee sound like a baritone. (laughs) (laughs) It's an interesting... Here's an interesting nugget for those who care about these sorts of things, though. The vocalist for that first record was Jason McMaster, who would go on to front the band Dangerous Toys. The Wild Hearts, Ryan. I'm sure they have other great records, but the only one I really know is their debut, Earth Versus, The Wild Hearts. They're another one of those bands I got into from reading Classic Rock Magazine, uh, who are huge champions of the band. Like Manic Street Preachers, they're big stars uh, back home in the UK. Not so much in North America, which is a shame. It's total stadium rock uh, that, for whatever reason, just didn't catch on over here as much as it did back home. But that's a great record. What is this? Self-titled 1985 MCA Records. I checked this out after reading Flea's book, which I loved. This is him, Jack Irons, and Hillel Slovak, pre-Red Hot Chili Peppers. And Alain Johans. It sounds a lot like early Prince to me. It's definitely funky for sure. Here's a recommend for you, Ryan. Whirly World. W-H-I-R-L-Y-W-I-R-L-D. One word. They're an early Australian post-punk group with a definite pop group pill influence. They never did a proper album, just some singles and an EP. And it's all now collected on an excellent full-length collection on Hozak Records. That sounds cool. Yeah. White Flag, Wild Kingdom, 1987. This was recommended by a listener some time ago. I'm sorry, I don't recall who, but it's it's since become a favorite of mine. It's on Positive Force, which totally makes sense. There's some great covers on it of The Saints, um, Cheap Trick, Kiss, of course, BOC. It's great glammy rock, not unlike uh, Bill Bartel's Pals in Red Red Cross. It's really good. And Ryan, I also listened to a White Flag single you gifted me on Gasatanka Records with a song called Flipside that has Jeff McDonald, Greg Hetson, and Vicky and Debbie Peterson on it. Right on. Yeah. Wasted Youth, Black Days. No surprise that I prefer this to their early hardcore stuff. Uh, Clearly, they were influenced by late 80s suicidal. Good stuff. And Ryan, Six Degrees of Ginnovation with Wasted Youth. Are you ready? Are you putting me to the test? I'm going to walk you through it. Are you ready? Okay, yeah. No, I'm totally ready for you to walk me through it. I, I, <laughs> I don't want to be subjected to it. Okay, do you know who the bass player was in Wasted Youth? I do not. Okay, he was in a band called Velvet Revolver. That is a band that had Slash in it and some Stone Temple Pilots guys, right? Okay, the guy's name is Dave Kushner. Okay, do you know who the bass player was, though, in Velvet Revolver? No. It was Duff McKagan. Okay. 
Do you know who the first guitar player was in Duff McKagan's band, Loaded? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was wow. none. Other, it was none other than Des Kadena. Oh no way! Yeah, there you go. Six degrees. Wait, wait, no, no, no. Finish it up, man. You can't just end at Des. What Des, band? Des Kadena happened to play in a little band with Greg Ginn called Black Flag. There you go. And Des was the singer and guitarist. Don't forget. <laughs> All right. W Y X Z. The album's O-D-Y-X. You would like this, Ryan. It's their second record. It's instrumental, mathy, jazzy prog rock on John John Zorn's Zadok label. Again, it's Matt Hollenberg from Cleric and John Fromm and Shardick and Simulcrum just melting frets. Check that out, Ryan. You would like that. Okay. You have to buy it, though. Why? You won't, you won't find it online for streaming anywhere. W-Y-X-E? Zorn doesn't stream anything. Okay. You can't even get some, like, you know, underground Zorn streaming on YouTube or something? Maybe on YouTube. No official yeah. streaming. He's not on Spotify or... You could maybe hear it on iTunes or something. I don't know. He's taken a pretty hard stance against streaming. Okay. Yep. That's it. That's the W section, Ryan. Whoa. Yeah. Once again, few. <laughs> That's cool. There's a few. There's a few I have to check out. Yeah. Right on. Should we Should we get into this swa record? Are you feeling swa? I thought I felt swa when we did uh, episode ninety three, but I really feel swa. So yes. History lesson part one. How do we tackle Arroyo times two, Brent? How do we do this? Well, I have a little thing here, Ryan. So this is obviously a 12-inch EP. It's got two versions of the song. It's got the short version, which is 4 minutes and 45 seconds. And then it's got the long version, 6 minutes, 16 seconds. So an extra minute and a half, roughly. Mm -hmm. uh, the Arroyo was also released in a 6-minute version on a 7-inch single as PSST 93, a promo single with The Optimist as the B-side. Of course, it's on episode or uh, SST ninety three on the on the parent album, the six minute version. Uh, on that episode, Ryan, we we spoke to Merrill Ward. Uh, he talks about writing this track. I believe he wrote it on an acoustic guitar. He also talks about uh, the inspiration for the song, which at that time was his breakup uh, with girlfriend Modi Frank. I think he calls it in that episode a love song of desperation. And he says the wastelands in the song are like a metaphor for Los Angeles and her love is the water. And there's, you know, lyrics in there like, life is just a desert while we search for love in every place we can. And the woman is the water that brings new life to the lost and desperate man. Of course, the band during this era is Chuck Dukowski on bass, Greg Cameron on drums, Sylvia Jankosa on guitar, and Merrill Ward on vocals. Obviously, Ryan, the idea, I think, behind the shorter version would possibly be to have it played on the radio, as it's a very catchy song. Yep, it's the perfect length for a video, too. Yeah, the, the video is the six-minute version, the album, the album version. Is it? Yeah. Oh, no way. Yeah. I, do, I, I actually never paid attention to that. Yeah. That's about it. I mean, we've talked about the parent album. Uh, everyone should go back and listen to that 
interview with Merrill for sure. I have a few few more things to talk about, but why don't we kick it over to Modi? Let's do it. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Modi Frank. Modi, thanks for being on the show. No, thank you, gentlemen. If it wasn't for you, uh, the SST legacy and the truth behind SST and all the hard work that all of us did would not exist. So we all thank you. Oh, thanks for saying that. Modi, I'm wondering if you can take me back to growing up. I believe you grew up in L.A., and... Correct me if I'm wrong, but you were exposed to the film industry from pretty much from day one. Your father was an actor. Correct. I was uh, born in Hollywood, California, Queen of Angels Hospital. And my father, Ben Frank, came here obviously in the early 60s. And he was a boxer, champion boxer from New York and came here to Hollywood to be an actor. And he turned into uh, quite an actor. He was a character actor in the 60s, 70s, um, streets of San Francisco, detective shows, stuff like that. So I pretty much uh, grew up on sets. And my stepmom, who we met out here, was a uh, producer. Oh. Um, so I, that's, uh, I was on sets out the gate. Yeah. Yeah. When did you know you wanted to be in the industry? Well, it's not that I wanted there was no moment that I wanted to be, I was. Yeah. <laughs> it's just everything I saw. I mean, there was definitely a light bulb moment when I wanted to be a director, and that's when I met Exine. Mm. But as far as being a filmmaker, uh, that's all I ever did. From PA, art department, producing, uh, costuming, um, everything possible I did on set. Those were the jobs. Uh, there definitely was a turning point where I wanted to be a director, but um, as far as the film industry, that's just what you did to put food on the table. Right. What were you doing, like, in high school? Were you doing um, acting classes? Like, were you in drama? Did you did you make Super 8 movies? Actually... I made my first Super 8. We moved. Uh, we were renters, so we moved like every two years. So I lived everywhere from Laurel Canyon to Malibu in the 70s. And we lived on Malibu Road in the 70s. It was still inexpensive. Then I went to Malibu Park Junior High. And at every school, including junior high, I always took the audio-video classes. And um, I made a... Uh, short film, a skateboard film with Paul Hackett, David Hackett, Carrie Cooper, a bunch of early Dogtown skaters. And I, and on Super 8, and I cheesily cut it to Jethro Tull's Skating Away. <laughs> so, so I pretty much picked up a camera in, in junior high. Uh, in high school, I was a DJ. I went to uh, Santa Monica High and I went to graduated Beverly High. So again, we moved every two years. So Beverly High was really sort of the, uh, I call it the Stern years because the Stern brothers were there. That was 79 when I graduated. And I was a DJ at that school. I was also, at that point, I had mastered audio and video. So I was more of the audio video helper. I was the one you would rent out the equipment from. I grew up in theater. 
I was a child actress, so I never really took drama. I was definitely um, someone you uh, you threw me a camera okay. or you threw me a VHS deck to fix. When's the last time you saw that footage of the Dogtown crew? Did, well, how, do you have it? What do you mean? It does it. Do you still have? I it? I have it somewhere. It's not in the Dogtown documentary, which I was one of the shooters on the Dogtown documentary because. For whatever reason, us moving every two years, I was always in the perfect place at the perfect time when there was some sort of budding explosion of creative people. So I was in Malibu in the 70s, 1976, and that was the Dogtown years. All the skater boys would come to mine or Carrie's house to go surfing, and then we'd all go skating. So... My skate film is not in the Dogtown movie. I ended up seeing a lot of the interviews for the documentary, the ones with Henry and the ones with Alva and Tony Hawk, I think, mm -hmm. uh, because Stacy was a good friend of mine. And, you know, from that Dogtown era, both Stacy and I, Stacy Peralta, became filmmakers. Right. But um, uh, where that film is, I don't know. I'd have to dig it up. Okay. What was your gateway into the um, into the punk scene? What was the what was the band, or how did you how did you discover Patty punk Smith? Rock? Patty. Patty Smith. Patty Smith was the first. I mean, I had been seeing live acts as a kid. I would get dragged around to John Denver concerts and et cetera. But you know, when you're eight or nine years old. But my first um, sort of like what is this? I can go to a show on my own and I want more was Patty Smith. What about locally? That was local. <laughs> I mean, what do you mean by local like, in Hollywood? Yeah. For like the local bands. Oh, local bands, uh, circle jerks and black flag because I lived down the street. You know, when I left the house at 18, my first apartment or second apartment, first or second apartment was down the street from the whiskey. And so that was about 1980, 1981. So I would just walk up to the whiskey and there was licorice pizza across the street and see bands there. And I do, uh, I remember Circle Jerks were one of the first ones, but I believe my very first local show was the Starwood and I'm pretty sure it was the Circle Jerks playing. Okay. Or Black Flag, one of them. Because all I remember, given that my memory is fading, uh, was male bonding at its finest, sweat and boots <laughs> flying everywhere. And um, that was after the Patti Smith show, and that's when I was like, yep, I'm in. Right. This is fun. <laughs> I believe Merrill told us when we talked to him that the two of you met possibly when Overkill was recording at Unicorn? Do you recall? No, that would be incorrect. Okay. I did work for Unicorn very quickly, right when the lawsuit was happening. I was in Santa Monica because I was part of the Santa Monica Playhouse Theater Group, and there was a help wanted sign at Unicorn Records, and I took the job, and Daphna threw me in a closet with no lights, no heater and I was selling black flag singles and completely unaware that flag was being sued by her. I met Merrill 
well, I first met Merrill at Cafe de Graham because I was going to shows. Right. I saw him and he was loading up a van and he had this sort of 1920s cap on and I was obsessed with the Dead End Boys, which is a, a 30s, 40s, bad boys acting gang. <laughs> They're called the Dead End Boys. Okay. And he looked just like one of the dead end boys. And I thought he was cute as a button and he completely blew me off. And then I met him again. Another way that I would get into shows is I would show up early and offer whatever band that was coming into town. If I could see the show, I would sell merch for them. So I'm pretty sure it was a misfit show and I was selling t-shirts and Merrill came up to me and now Merrill thought I was cute. And right when he was chatting me up, he said, Oh, where do you work? And I go, I, I finally, when I saw Merrill, I put two and two together that unicorn was evil and SST was good. And I was on the wrong team. <laughs> and I said to him, Oh, I work for the enemy. And he goes, who's the enemy? And I go, I'm working at unicorn records selling TV party singles. And he just, his jaw dropped. And right then some kid, because I wasn't paying attention, stole a Misfits shirt. And you literally could see this kid running and him swinging the shirt in the air into the crowd. And Merrill bravely ran into the crowd, tackled the young man and brought back the shirt and said, here's the shirt. And will you go out with me? <laughs> right on so he really endeared himself to you right from right from day one correct and uh <laughs> th there it is pretty immediately after meeting merrill i quit unicorn was overkill going at this time do you recall at all was swa started yet i think it was i think overkill was was kind of winding down it wasn't the beginning of overkill i i remember there might have been a Godzilla's gig or something, but I think uh, Overkill was winding down. So I didn't meet Meryl at a show or a gig and go, oh, my God. You know, I, I never saw him sing. I, 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 when I saw him at Cafe de Grand, he was loading out for a band. Meryl used to roadie for a bunch of SST bands. So I just thought he was one of the SST guys, which he was. Now, at this time, are you working with Penelope at all yet? Penelope Spheris? I... No, that, so that, so then me and Meryl uh, were dating, and then we moved in together very quickly, and then I got the job with Penelope. It was right after Suburbia, and I worked on three or four films with her as her personal assistant. Uh, so the, the Meryl years are definitely the Penelope years, mm -hmm. but it was right after Suburbia because then she got her first official movie, like a real budget, which was Boys Next Door. So this is Meryl. I met Meryl in, I want to say, 82. You worked on Dudes. Yes, I did. That's awesome. <laughs> That's a great movie. Yeah, I'm in it somewhere as a uh, dolled up saloon girl. As a saloon I'm girl. I mean, all those movies as, yeah, I mean, all those movies based on some extra didn't show up or Penelope wouldn't trust that somebody would do the right thing when she was shooting an over-the-shoulder shot, so she would always throw me in. 
you were around when Dave was making Love Doll Superstar as well, and I think involved to a degree. Correct. I'm in it. Dave has which? Do you have two movies? Love Dolls. Is there Love Dolls one and two? Yeah, the first one's called uh, Desperate Teenage Love Dolls. Well, I'm in. I don't know which one I'm in, but I'm in the one where there's Bruce Springsteen, right? Which is Jordan, and I am the Courtney Cox character dancing with him. Okay. Merrill mentioned this briefly when we talked to him, but it's something I really want to know more about because I have I've just heard it mentioned, but as I understand it, you were somewhat involved in the Zero Zero Club. You know, is that the same Zero Club that David Lee Roth was somewhat involved in? Correct. Now that club, um, there was many versions of and the first one was a very um top jimmy very x um way way zada was run by those guys was on kuanga i went there a couple times then he moved again down to gardner and i think he let me had a film night and i had a friend carl heinz from san francisco and we would show films and then the gardner one fell apart and i think that's when pokno took over and then when John Polkna took over, he put it as a front as an art gallery, which put in a lot of petty bones and a lot of artists. So it was, quote unquote, an art gallery that opens at midnight or one or two in the morning. And that's when me and Merrill also worked there. He did the door and I did the door. And we were also in charge of setup. And then Polkna's food money was David. Ah, uh, okay. And so David had carte blanche there. Uh, all, almost all musicians had carte blanche there, and there was definitely a night where <laughs> we got raided by the cops, and we had to hide David. <laughs> so that no one could put two and two together that David was a part of the Zero Club. Right. I mean, I just, I'm fascinated by this notion of David Lee Roth, you know, mingling with the L.A. punk scene. Well, here's the thing. You know, I have a lot of problems with the word punk. And anybody who was around then, who was part of working bands, has a problem with that word. To us, it was never a punk scene. It was a music scene. So, for instance, if you went to the Zero you know, the fourth zero on Vine, you know, uh, Exceed was there, David was there, Top Jimmy was there, uh, Tex and the Horseheads were, was there. Um, it was, you know, the music scene in the mid-80s was, was no longer punk. Sure, was there a punk band you could go see? Absolutely. But you could also see the Blasters. You could also go see the Plugs. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so when you say I have a hard time picturing David hanging out with the punk scene, there was no punk scene to us. It was a big, fat music scene. And I think, you know, looking back, that's what I miss the most. It's not that on any night I could see thump, thump, punk rock every night. It's any night I could see all types of music. 
you know, on Tuesdays, the plugs were playing. On Wednesday, the blasters were playing. On Thursday, X was playing. On Friday, Black Flag was playing. So it was a big melting pot of everything. And for David, it was just him hanging out with a bunch of other musicians as it was all of us. Yeah, I I take your point. I guess I'm using the word punk as maybe a, a catch-all phrase for, you know, independent music. So, Well, there was another catch-all phrase that I couldn't stand, and this one I hate even more, which is underground. Like, I never, you know, underground became alternative in the 90s when record companies could cash in on it. And same thing with the filmmakers, us filmmakers, we were constantly called underground. And I, I, I always was fighting against that going, well, actually I have to pay rent and I have to pay my bills and I live above ground. So stop calling us underground, but that's the tag we got. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned Exine. Tell me about the bad day project, quite the cast involved. Yes. So I was hanging out, I was 86, and I was hanging out with Dave Alvin, and I had really moved into Roots Rock then, that's when that was jumping. That's when there was like, uh, uh, you know, uh, top of the barrel was Stray Cats, they were kind of a little bit commercial, but if you went underneath that, then you had the Blasters, you had Levi Dexter, you had Tupelo Chain Sex, it was great. And I was hanging out with Dave Alvin. And um, he said, hey, do you want to go to a birthday party for Michael Blake? And I said, sure. And I didn't know who Michael Blake was. And uh, Exine was there. And he, oh, no. He goes, you got to go pick up Exine. She needs a ride. And, I, you know, I knew who she was, obviously. It's 1986. I said, yeah, I'll go pick her up. No problem. And I picked her up. And I brought her there. And we just immediately hit it off in my car. And then when we got to the party... Uh, her and I grabbed a Polaroid camera and we started taking pictures of everybody. And we just became immediately best friends. The next day she invited me over to her place where I had picked her up and we were talking and she started telling me about these tour movies that she was making. And I thought, what, what do you mean you're making tour movies? And she goes, oh, let me show you. And she started to thread a projector it was a Super 8 projector, and she showed me her ex-tour movies. And I had seen some tour movies before, and generally they were pretty poor quality. Mm-hmm. And they were amazing. Like, everything was in focus. There, was, there wasn't lots of wide shots. There was lots of close-ups, lots of mediums. It was as though somebody completely different had shot them. And I was like, oh my God, you're a camera person. I said, we should make a movie. And she's like, yeah, we should make a movie. That's a good idea. And we just dropped it. And then right then that, within a couple of weeks, the unheard music came out. Right. And there's a music video in the unheard music called Because I Do, which she and her boyfriend at the time, Pete Haskell did. And it is to this day, my favorite music video. It's an old 1920s um, takeoff. And I, it hit me in unheard music like, yeah, I really got to make a film with Exine because if you took away that band, she's a filmmaker. And the other person who has that too is Terry Farrell and Henry has that as well. 
It's sort of like they are singers in bands, but their passion is film. Mm. And um, so I said, Xenia, you know, we really should make this film. And she saw how uh, I was sort of outgrowing Penelope, and I wanted to start to make a director's reel. And she said, okay, tell you what, we'll make a film and you'll have a director's reel and you won't have to work for Penelope anymore. And I go, okay, let's do it. I go, what should we do? And I, I, we didn't have any money for audio. We had no money. And I said, why don't we make a silent Western just like your music video, but it's a Western. Right. And then we don't have to pay for any audio. And she goes, great. And I go, who's going to be in it? And she goes, all our friends. And at that time, X had really sort of pushed towards the knitters. And I, and I saw, to me, that roots rock music thing had really shifted. And I realized that all these people were really sort of these California cowboys. So we have Dave Alvin in it as the wandering dusty troubadour, John Doe as the um, undertaker, Michael Blake as the sheriff, Chris D., as uh, I believe he's a sheriff too, Julie Christensen, Gil T. It's just all our friends. Right. And, you know, they all thought we were, me and Xene were completely insane because we're like, we're going to make a movie. It's going to be a black and white Western. And it's going to be, you know, Xene's going to shoot it. Me and Xene wrote it. Me and Xene produced it. And I directed it. And she was the one doing me a solid because it really was for me to have on my director's reel. Right. And then John Doe at that time was really, really good friends with Kevin Costner, who had not exploded yet in terms of his career. It was right before um, that spy movie, whatever it is, which Chris D has a little part in. Mm. You probably know which one it is. And uh, Kevin said yes, too. And, I mean, we'd had rehearsals in my apartment, and it was a constant game of me and Xene going, we can do this, we can do this, we're going to do this, and everybody going, okay, whatever, girls, and we borrowed costumes, we, uh, Paul Greenstein's in it, the guy who ran Millie's, he brought real props, um, and then a friend of mine, of my dad's, had a full backyard on one side, it's a stunt school, and one side was a saloon, a whole western set, and on the other side was Vietnam. <laughs> and at the stunt school, that's where he would teach people stunts. So we got that whole backyard for free. Uh, we did have a little benefit for the post-production. And <laughs> what's interesting to me is that it did start my directing career, but in my pantheon of work, it is probably the worst of my directing. Like I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> Zero. But it did give me a reel. And, and then I tried to hustle it. I couldn't get a job. And so then I turned to Xene and go, I can't get a job with this film. I go, let's do an X video. And she goes, okay, let's do an X video. <laughs> and we did one without the records company permission. We did it to dancing with tears in my eyes. And at that time she was going out with Vigo and John was with Gigi. I ended up recutting it for her solo record, but it was that video and uh, a couple of others that then led me to Jane's Addiction. 
and music videos were just starting at that time. So, okay, I can't remember the parent album, but I there's a song on there called "Leave Heaven Alone" and on Exine's album. I, yes. I think you did the video for that. That yes, I it's did. It's a great album. I I can't recall the the title of it, but so that's well, uh, old wives, right? Yes. Yeah. So that leads you into Jane's addiction. Yes. I did Jane's before Old Wives' Tales, but any way you look at it, Exene was my uh, catapult out of working for others. Right. Now that song, Mountain Song, and the video, I think it's fair to say kind of set a, a template for whatever you want to call it. I don't want to use the word alternative rock videos, but I think you know what I'm getting at. That kind of style of video and the fact that artists like Jane's Addiction could make videos and have them played. I, I feel like your video for that song kind of set the, you know, set the template for that. Correct. Um, at that time, uh, the Mountain Song time, most not most, almost all the videos were very White Lion, very Def Leppard. Dollies, big production, and super fake live stuff. Even if there was live, it would usually be in the studio, big hair, big lights, big cameras. And, um, I mean, I didn't, I did do a shot list, it was a live gig. I did a shot list and where all the camera people were going to be placed. But that video was the first video that you actually felt it was live. And it was, but it wasn't fake live. So it sort of uh, blew the roof off of, well, you guys aren't, you guys are playing the click track and this is what it looks like live. And a lot of bands at that time saw that video uh, for instance, um, the guy from Stone Temple Pilots told me later that when he saw Mountain Song, he, he literally jumped up and down and said, that is how I want the world to see us. Like, we're really playing. It's a real show. And for me, I didn't realize it at the time, but all of the live shows that I saw in the early 80s, all the SST bands, is what led me to correctly capture a band live. And I, we did it for Mountain Song. We had multiple cameras. I had everything from Super 8 to 16. And um, it was a crazy day. And um, and then I did shoot the insert stuff, which was the uh, stuff that Perry had made of the, of the two twins. It was, um, what's that word? I don't know what it's called. Oh, the but Siamese he had the twins? Two yeah, he had them in his living room, and I'm the one who shot that stuff, and that's the stuff that got in trouble because there was nipples, and MTV wouldn't play it. He made them, and they were in the living room, and he's like, will you film this? And I also filmed uh, him and Perry pretending they were dead and covered in flowers. And then um, Casey shot. Um, Casey said, I want to add more footage. I want everybody, all the band members making out with each other. And I was like, okay, you go shoot that. But as far as the live footage and the statue and Casey and Perry, um, uh, that was all my stuff. And then Casey added a little bit more. Okay. Now, after that, 
did you find that it was difficult for you to be accepted? I mean, there was very few females making videos at that time. Was that a challenge for you? Um, there was very few females. There was me, Penelope, and Tamara Davis, and another woman, Sophie. She was shooting, like, um, no doubt videos and stuff. Okay. But each of us were so completely different. Uh, Tamara was very much into uh, the delicious vinyl stuff. Sophie was very glittery and glossy. Penelope was over in sort of the metal department. And so I was in the alternative band department and live. Uh, and live sometimes even main, means fake live, like the L7 videos I did. We did uh, close-ups at Soundcheck and then pulled back cameras when the gig happened. But I never, I didn't realize I was ever a female filmmaker until literally a couple of years ago. <laughs> so I never saw it that way. The struggle was not the female part. The struggle was that Nirvana hadn't hit yet. So the struggle was that the big bands were getting the budgets, Guns N' Roses, you know, Dawkins, stuff like that. They were getting the big budgets. And the alternative bands w were still getting no money. So... Um, that was more of the struggle. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like getting a decent budget. <laughs> At what point did you start your own film company? The Jane's Addiction video got me representation at Propaganda Films, the very early days of Propaganda Films, and David Fincher was there. A um, bunch of great filmmakers were there. That was the Madonna years. And... Uh, that's when I did Xene at Propaganda, but I brought that job in. And what was happening was I couldn't get arrested. I couldn't get arrested at Propaganda as a director because I was a little fish in a really big pond. Uh, you know, uh, all the jobs were going to David. And also, I wasn't, you know, I take a lot of responsibility for it. I wasn't what you call, they used to call us back then, not me, but they would call other directors, it's called liquid gold. So if you gave David Fincher a, a shoe commercial, it would come out like liquid gold. If you gave David Fincher a Madonna video or a Janet Jackson video or whatever, it's liquid gold. With me, it was always um, street level, grunge, grainy, uh, from the hip, which didn't pay off for me until the 90s right and it paid off well for me in the 90s because that's when pearl jam and nirvana hit and rollins band but in the late 80s um i just I couldn't get gigs and i was repped at one of the biggest companies in the world and um i did get a little female um backlash at propaganda not anything horrific but enough for me to take my reels and leave and start my own company um i had brought some friends of mine down there to be represented and uh they said oh it's really great here it's really fancy it's really beautiful but how come uh this particular person who was the rep there they said uh how come uh modi's not getting any gigs modi's brought us in here and we want to be here but you're not getting her any work because every job at propaganda i brought in and um 
she said, well, I'm having a hard time because she's a woman. And I pulled my reels the next day. So I didn't know that that was a problem, but uh, apparently uh, that's what she said. And so I took my reels and I started my own production company. And that's, you know, now we're pushing towards the early 90s. And that's when uh, things in the music world started to take another direction, which was beneficial to me. Right. And others. Did you bring Meryl in as like a production partner? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Meryl, so Meryl's, you know, outside of his uh, rock god status, was working for Moshe Bracca, uh, who was a friend of mine. I got him a job as a photographer's assistant. And then Meryl also was working on sets, again, doing everything. And then he moved up through Moshe producing, so he ended up, doing a lot of producing for me too. We weren't going out anymore, but Meryl is definitely um, the boyfriend that became my best friend. So, you know, there was a lot of money being thrown my way in terms of budgets, you know, not huge, but enough that I don't know what to do with this money. And Meryl does. And I don't know what we're supposed to spend it on. Right. And Meryl does. So Meryl, <laughs> Meryl produced uh, quite a few videos for me and in between him running around and producing for other people okay so he produced for david lynch he produced for moshe Braca. yeah now you mentioned rollins band you worked extensively with henry and the rollins band talk about some Correct. of those projects that you did well which ones there's so many yeah well you did some videos I did a bunch, yeah. uh, and also I also did a thing called EPKs back then. So in between music videos, I was one of the first people to figure out what a super VHS was, what a high eight was, what a beta was, how to shoot on video and make it look good. So these record companies would hire me to do these EPKs, which were either go on the road with the band for a week or make the making of the record. Uh, and then they take these EPKs and they would send them out around the world. So then you've got, you know, 10 or 15 minutes of a band making a record and touring. And then that station in Europe only pulls three minutes out of it. Right. And then they do their own interview. Like I've seen stuff of Henry interviewed in Germany and about, you know, 40% of it is from an EPK I did for him. So I was doing a lot of music promos in between music videos. But um, with Henry, the way that started, I mean, of course I had knew Henry from Black Flag days, although I didn't really talk to him that much because you wanted to stay out of the path of Henry in the flag days. Mm -hmm. I was very close to Chuck and Merrill in those early 80 days. Those were my go-to boys. And I just sort of took a left or a right turn when Henry came around the corner. But him and I became very close and really good friends through a mutual friend, Joe Cole. Originally what happened was um, Henry started doing spoken word stuff and Joe needed help. And he said, I'm going to shoot a bunch. Henry's going to start a video division at 213.61 and I need a help. And Henry wants me to do all this stuff. And you're out there with all your video cameras and you're directing and you're shooting. Will you help me? You produce it. And Joe said, and I'll direct it. And Joe was making a thing called God's Movie at the time. But there was so much footage, he, he didn't have a clue how to cut it together. 
So he's like, will you come produce? And I'm going to be directing a bunch of stuff for the Rollins band, for Henry. And I was like, sure, absolutely, Joe, whatever you need. I'm, I'm happy to support you. And within a very short time of me and Joe um, shooting some of Henry's stuff with Joe as the front guy and me kind of behind Joe, helping and supporting him, uh, Joe was killed. Yeah. And it was at that time that Henry you know, basically turned to me and said, you are taking over Joe's duties now. Hmm. You are 21361 video department. And if you look at the end of God's movie, you'll see there's a really funny promo of me and Henry talking about all the videos we were going to put out. So I kind of started with 213 and, you know, if Exene, Exene's uh, confidence in me catapulted me, it's, it's an unfortunate thing for me to say that it was Joe's death that also catapulted me. Yeah. Tell me about God's movie. What, what was that? That was something Joe was working on? Oh, it's so great. I think it's online. It's Joe running around uh, interviewing people in Venice with his camera. And, you know, when I say it, it doesn't sound like anything great. But when you watch the footage, there was something about Joe and his warmth and his kindness that he could get anybody to talk to him. And uh, it's really fun to watch and amazing to watch in terms of him really capturing all types of people in Venice from the weird and eclectic to the straight. And uh, he never had a chance to cut it together. So that was the first thing me and Henry did was we edited it. And like I said, Henry is also a massive film fan. So, you know, Henry, Exene, I call it the, the Bermuda Triangle. Henry, Exene, and Perry. These are not people that you sort of shoot and you cut it and you go, oh, here it is. What do you think? Right. They're with you every single step of the way. And they put their faith in you and they put their trust in you. But in terms of, you know, including like just talking about what films you're going to watch that night. Oh, I'm going to watch Apocalypse Now. I'm going to go watch this Fellini film. You know what I mean? So they were hand in hand with me on every single aspect of what I was doing for them. So um, uh, God's movie was uh, uh, our first one. And, and Henry, you know, it's not like he said, oh, just here, take it, cut it, and then call me in a couple of weeks. Right. He was like, I like this part. I like that part. Make sure you put that part in. And did you get that part in? And and you should trim that part down a little. And he was very, very involved. You know, Rollins Band hadn't taken off then yet. Right. But 213 had. His book company was doing good. Who's Manny Chevrolet? <laughs> <laughs> Manny Chevrolet. So Manny was one of the two Free Stooges, which was a band with him and Dick Rude and Xander. And as you know, Xander's from Repo Man and, you know, Dick Rude from Repo Man. Right. And they had this sort of theatrical Vegas meets acid band. And um, Christina Beck from Suburbia had written a play. 
and she gave it to Dick Rude to direct, but it didn't happen. And then she gave it to me, and I said, oh, I want to direct this. This looks really great. She, I think she wanted Manny. Yeah, she wanted Manny or something, and I said, um, I had been really uh, hung up on a thing called the Wooster Group, and the Wooster Group was William Defoe's New York acting troupe, and they were one of the first ones to use video monitors in a play production, but they were using it as video art. And I said, why don't we incorporate short films, and then when an actor steps off stage, they're literally stepping into a short film on a monitor like the Wooster Group, but it's actually a narrative. So Manny leaves, he'll, he'll be on stage and going, I'm out of here, man. I'm going to the bar. I can't take this anymore. And then you cut and then he walks off stage and the monitor comes on and he's drinking in the bar on the video monitor. Okay. So that's where Manny came in with those short films. And what happened was when the play was over, I had all these great short films. So I just recut them and made them their own films that had nothing to do with the play. Uh-huh. Like you could watch this film on its own and never have gone to the play. I see. And also Manny too was part of uh, Devin Sarno, who was also a big part of my career. He was always doing jobs. And so um, Jeff Aroff, the head of Virgin, hated EPKs and he hated promos. And he saw one of my Manny short films through Devin. So it's just this wacky Vegas comedy two-minute thing. And he's like, we should have that guy interview Iggy Pop for the EPK. Like, I just want to make fun of this whole thing. (laughs) So that's how Manny ended up in a whole bunch of insane EPKs from Lenny Kravitz to Iggy Pop. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, it gets... You're supposed to be going way left field, but I'm going. Go ahead. <laughs> what about the pump with a chump thing with Henry? What was that designed for? Okay, so there was this plethora of Manny. I, I, I don't know how to... Manny sort of just... When me and him worked together, everything ignited. He was He is the male version of me in terms of a New York, Vegas Don Rickles. So these short films started to take a life of its own and people would bootleg them. And Henry loved Manny. Anybody who saw Manny was just nuts. You'd go nuts. So uh, Mark Cuban, somehow the film got to Mark Cuban. Okay. And Mark Cuban was just starting up the High Definition Network and said, uh, we're going to give you a bunch of money and we want you to make Manny... Chevrolet shorts. What do you want to do? And I said, uh, well, I'm hanging out with Henry. And what if Henry was to give Manny a workout lesson? And he's like, that's great. Go do it. And so then I go, okay, Henry, that whole thing, pump with the chump is improvised from top to bottom. And the voices on the phone are me. Again, my background is a child actress. So all the voices, Manny's mom is me. And so it's one of those things. Like I just call Henry and I go, Hey, I'm going to do a little short film with Manny. You're going to give him a workout. He's like, when are you coming over? (laughs) That's how pump and then pump to jump. You know, all those films started to tour film festivals and they did really well because they were these like two minute comedies pre YouTube and people went crazy. 
for those short films because they were just take the piss out of everything and they weren't these arty farty films of someone waking up and and turning off an alarm clock they were actual like comedies so they took on its life as its own you know i was a machine back then i was non-stop if i wasn't shooting i was sweating over a fax machine trying to get into a film festival in spain (laughs) shipping off you know vhs's to spain right so um they they sort of took their life a life of their own and they did really well around the world the epks too i mean you did a lot of them for some pretty huge artists too like keith richards kiss ramones any standouts no i didn't do ramones uh, I did a Ramones. I was a, a, a assistant director on uh, "I Want to Be Sedated," ah. and I'm I think I'm in it. And I gathered everybody up from Bob Forrest to Courtney to a bunch of people to be in it. Okay, but uh, anyways, we're sidetracking. Okay, <laughs> so the EPKs. What happened was I got hired as a senior director for a series of video magazines because back then you would have what's called video magazines. So you'd have a rap one, a country one, a metal one, a dance one, because every music was in its category. Right. And so BMG figured out, well, we could take all these EPKs, a making of a record or interviewing Alice in Chains or hanging out with Kisses or putting on makeup, even if it's a two-minute segment or a four-minute segment, MTV-style, and put it on these 90 or 60 minute cassettes and sell them. So, uh, and we did a lot of live stuff. We would do multiple camera stuff on Stone Temple Pilots. So that was my bread and butter back then. And, and I was particularly really good at it. We had a lot of directors that we worked with, uh, Tom Stern and Alex Winter. They did the art one, which was impact, which was Robert Williams mm-hmm. and stuff like that. We had an art one. And what's really funny is that's the one who, that has the test of time. James Addiction's in it. So I was a senior director. I could dole out jobs to other directors. I could oversee shoots or I could do the shoot. And then I would just kind of oversee all the post-production. That was another area that that area of post-production is really what excelled me and made me different was that I could basically live in an edit bay for a month at a time and and just crank out work with the editor i'd eat and sleep there and then boom you got a 90 minute tape or you got a three minute video (laughs) i started to supervise a lot of post-production too the the only reason why i'm working with big name bands is because all these big name bands want to be on this bmg video magazine so one day you're shooting katie lang next day you're shooting kiss Next day, you're shooting NWA. Oh, we had a rap one, too. But these are all quick one-offs. You go in, you're shooting for two or three hours, and you're out. This is not an all-day shoot like a music video. You know what I mean? Yeah. We bring the beta cam, we bring some Super 8s, and, and there it is. So, um, when, you know, somehow I, I got thrown into all that. <laughs> <laughs> when you talk about sleeping in an editing bay for a month and cranking out work, I... I'm starting to see maybe why you and Henry worked so well together. Oh, yeah. You know, um, you know, I mean, everybody, the, the reason, the reason why SST worked is, is, is multi-layered, but on top of that, 
cake is an incredible work ethic and an incredible intelligence. And if anybody holds that, even though he's self-defecating, is Henry. Uh, He's a very well-read young man, and he has an incredible work work ethic. And, um, you know, the Tower of SST was not built on sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The Tower of SST was built on an incredible work ethic and an incredible amount of intelligence from all of those gentlemen and the desire to rock the fuck out. All right. So I'm wondering if maybe you can't talk about this. I'm not sure. But Merrill mentioned something very intriguing when he talked to us about a project that the two of you are working on together that kind of, he didn't put it this way, but it almost sounded like some of the the SST experience was used in the creation of this project. Can you talk about it at all? Correct. Sure. Um, I'll try and, well, that's a bad thing to say. I'll try and keep it short. I'm going to go on forever. <laughs> all right. So um, I had... Uh, developed with Merrill a screenplay called Raw Power. And it was, it's, it, all the names have, had been changed. It was written by a gentleman called Dave Luop. Uh, and it was based on the relationship with Henry and Joe. But I side tabled it uh, because I became pregnant at the Sundance Film Festival when we debuted the Dogtown film. And I put it on the back burner through and raised a child. And a couple of years ago, I cracked it out and realized, you know, I'm not going to direct this, but I could give it to somebody to direct. And um, I gave it to a couple of my friends, and then I gave it to Kevin Kerslick, who loved it, but thought that a um, bromance independent film isn't going to really go anywhere, and that there was possibly an episodic show inside of there and pointed out that the interesting part of that era was not necessarily the bromances that were happening among many men, but the dynamics of all the record labels and everything from SST to Splash. So Kevin, Merrill, and I formed a partnership, and we um, then realized that the true story is really... Uh, what Merrill and I and Kevin witnessed in terms of the independent Southern California Golden Boy DYI uh, record label magic. Okay. And so we are currently shopping around an episodic show uh, based on that called My War. Wow. And, you know, who knows, it might change and, you know, if, if you were to read it, you would, uh, you know, all the flavor and taste of SST would float through there. If somebody else who was involved in Slash Records was to read it, they would see all of that. And then we've really created something that was my goal, and I think all of our goal, which is if some 14-year-old kid who has no clue of any of that stuff saw this episodic show would be like, 
that's cool, man. That's what I want to do. Mm. So it's, it's, it's made for, for all sizes, but it's, you know, is it based on real life experience? Of course, because it's just like anybody who's trying to, um, show off, uh, what they saw in the sixties, seventies, eighties, twenties, thirties. It doesn't matter what era. If you are lucky enough to be young and to experience, you know, hot, sweaty music in a small club and literally have your face blown off, whether that's Benny Goodman or Black Flag, you know, then you try and get it down on paper and then you try and get it up on the screen. And um, we've taken a clear direction of making it completely fictitious. And I did that for a reason because I feel like I want it to be for everybody, not just us aging dunkers. <laughs> right on. Well, that sounds really exciting. Uh, hope it. You Thank know, you. Hope it comes to fruition and that we get to see it sometime really soon. So do I. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be my retirement check, brother. <laughs> right on. Modi, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, everyone. I can't believe this is coming out of my mouth, but go to Motivation Films, M-O-D-I-V-A-T-I-O-N films.com. You'll see all that stuff from Jane's L7 Rollins Band. All that stuff's up there, short films, and uh, keep shooting, keep playing, keep sweating. Thanks, Modi. All right, Sugar. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Modi, for being on the show. There's lots of great info there for sure. Really, see, you know, the thing that Modi really did for me in that interview is is provide like just a whole other view on that L.A. scene at this time frame. Oh, yeah, you know what I mean? Sure. Like there was so much cross pollination and all these different media that everyone was working in. That was really cool to hear right from Modi for me. Yeah. One thing I picked out, Ryan, is two weeks in a row now we have people meeting at a misfit show. I believe Maura Jasper and Jay Maskus met at a misfit show and Marilyn yeah. Modi met at a misfit show. Yeah. Well, like those types of shows back then would have attracted any scenester. When you see those crimson ghost posters show up in town, you get your tickets or you show up. Yeah. Uh, I, I had to laugh. The, I can't remember if I heard him tell this story one of the times I've seen Henry do spoken word or if I've just seen it online, but he has a, hol- a hilarious story about meeting David Lee Roth at that Zero Club. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and how about, Ryan, this project that she's working on with Mer- uh, with Meryl Ward and Kevin Kerslake, this My War TV show? Yeah, I hope that gets picked up, at least for a season. Someone, someone should give that a try. Yeah. And hey, Devin Sarno even gets a shout out from Modi. Yeah. Should we talk about these tracks a little bit? Yeah, man. History lesson, part two. Hey, let me give you a Spaceman spiel before we get into the Arroyo tracks themselves, because he did a little write-up in the SST catalog on this release as well. Okay. So it says, The elements collide. Man, in the most primal state, starts wanting action. From 93 to your most primal faculties capable of processing information, Arroyo comes blasting full-blown like some strong white animal straight into your hidden psyche. Arroyo short, 
the video mix. That's why I thought it was the video. But it says Arroyo Short, the video mix, and Arroyo Long, the remix, both stab without anger. Mm. So if you caught it, Spaceman used two SWA acronyms, too, in that spiel. Starts wanting action <laughs> and stabs without anger. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, I rewatched the video and it's definitely six minutes, so I'm not yeah, sure. There you go. The short version of this song basically takes out the solo after the second verse, verse and a chorus coming out of the solo, uh, which has Sylvia ripping some really great licks over top of that chorus. That's essentially what it takes out. Well, yeah. Hey, that's that's a good reminder too. Uh, folks should go back in addition to listening to episode ninety three. Should also listen to episode 146 and get some Junkoza on. Yeah. We'll also be seeing the six-minute album version of this in a few weeks on episode 157, the Evolution compilation. Yeah, they put the six-minute version on the Arroyo promo single too. Yeah, yeah. And the video too, Ryan. Everyone should go back and check that out on YouTube if they haven't. Merrill produced it. Moshe Braca, who gets a mention in the interview from Modi, he directed it. Uh, the entire band is in it, plus SST crew like uh, Dave O'Clausen, Jordan Schwartz, Worm vocalist Simon Smallwoods in the video, Dave Travis, uh, who shot the Slip It In video, and his sister Abby Travis are both in it. The artwork on the back of this is taken from that video, I think. Well, I don't think. I know it is. Front and back. Yep. You've got Merrill on the cover from the video. You've got Chuck the Duke there kind of looking a little bit like Mike Watt. Yeah, he's got a plaid going on, hey? Yeah, he's pointing the way to the Arroyo. You've got, uh, I'm assuming that's Abby Travis there at, in the top, and then cradling Merrill, and her, that's her in the white at the bottom. Yeah, it's a, it's a great video. Before we go to ballot results, should we uh, try on some dead wax? Yeah, sure. Okay, so this is off the 12-inch. This is the side-marked short version. It says... Pompeii, one word. Okay. Which is interesting because when you look at the um, the runout grooves, side one, Arroyo short version, the runout grooves, it says SST-153B. When you flip it over to side two, it says SST-153A. But uh, side two is the long version, and it says there, Easter Island. Okay. Did we do the runout grooves on the promo single already too? Yeah, we did. Pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I've got them standing by though if you need them. Just well, let me know. We could always I mean it never hurts to revisit Dead Wax, so Well, the reason I like this Dead Wax on the promo single is cuz it side A says Sylvia will arise. Oh yeah, right. Yep. And and side B says Sylvia wants action. Love that. Yeah. It's such an awesome tune, man. And, you know, Chuck's playing, of course, is phenomenal. Greg's playing, all the playing's awesome. Sylvia just shreds. But Meryl Ward, for me, is like a top 10 SST vocalist, for sure. Really? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, I love his singing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that you like it. I'm surprised, though, that it's top 10. Oh, it's top 10. Cool. Very interesting. Ballot result? Ballot result. So, which is it, Brent? Should it be Arroyo or Arroyo? <laughs> I think we have to go with the long version, though, because you get more Sylvia. 
Yeah, I totally agree. The only Arroyo for me is the long Arroyo. <laughs> All right. Hey, thanks to Greg Cameron and Merrill Ward for helping me get in touch with Modi. And thanks to Modi. Definitely go on her website, motivationfilms.com. Uh, you can see all, I think all of her videos are up there, or a, lar- a lot of them. Some of those EPKs we talk about, uh, the Manny California stuff, all of that's up on her website. That's cool. We have two episodes in a row with uh, like Mora last week and Modi this week. We've got some real artistic injection here on the show from a, a visual perspective. I love that. Yeah. All right, Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brant, we've got a first timer. It's SST 154, the Pat Ruthensmeer self-titled LP. Yeah, and we've got a special guest, Ryan. Paul Rossler's coming back on the show. Nice. Hey, everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.